Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Natalie Andrews, a Wall Street Journal social media editor and reporter, will give a talk today on USU campus as a part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, which is facilitated by Utah State's Department of Journalism and Communication. Here's how the department describes the talk. It's now clear that we live in an era of fake news, troll tweets, and email dumps. So what does that mean for media, our democracy, and our uh, future? Dale Andrews will discuss the role of the press in the 2016 election and what the results of that election portend for the intertwined futures of journalism and democracy. We have with us in studio Natalie Andrews, and we have on the phone uh, Salt Lake Tribune editor Jennifer Napier-Pierce. Jennifer Napier-Pierce, welcome to the program. Hi there, how are you? Doing very well. Uh, Made it through the snow here this morning, so... (laughs) <laughs> so Great. It, it worked out. Uh, thanks for joining us. Natalie Andrews uh, graduated from uh, JCOM department at USU, right? Yes, I did. Uh, 2006, served as KSL social media director from 2011-2014, and uh, now at the Wall Street Journal. So congratulations mm-hmm. on that on that gig. So what, what, uh, what do you do? You, you uh, run social media and do reporting as well? Yes, you know, my role has evolved there. But when I first started, I started in 2014, right before the midterms. And we were expanding our political coverage at the Wall Street Journal. And we wanted to make things more social, more interactive, and allow people to really interact with our politics coverage. And so, you know, we expanded our Twitter presence, our Facebook presence. We toyed with a few other platforms. um, And we also integrate, like, the Wall Street Journal's main platforms. We have a robust Instagram account, Snapchat, etc. So um, my role in our Washington Bureau is to take all that we have and see how we can make politics interactive, how we can get people to interact with that. Uh, right now, it includes doing a lot of like Facebook Lives with, say, our White House correspondents to explain Donald Trump's recent actions, if he's had a tumultuous week or different things like that, or, you know, maybe it's a graphic or here and there where we can really show different things that have been going on. So mm-hmm. it changes, it evolves, which is mm-hmm. actually a lot of fun. Now, the journalism department here in the, in the materials reminds us the Wall Street Journal was uh, famously resistant to, to change the new technology, uh, resisted putting photographs even in the paper for a while, but the journal apparently has really jumped in. Yeah, I think there's definitely a uh culture of trying new things and wanting to attract new audiences are the core brand of the wall street journals always going to stay the same the core coverage the strengths strength areas that make it the wall street journal that's always going to stay the same but the idea of how can you tell the story in a different way that changes Mm -hmm. certainly yeah. Jennifer Depier-Pierce, I know you've been involved in uh, in in pushing the, the Tribune, helping to, to get the Tribune out onto, I guess, all of the new platforms. I wonder if you talk a bit about that. And that's that's I guess that's where a lot of uh, readers, consumers of news are these days. It, it certainly is. Um, we've seen tremendous growth in our social sharing. So uh, about a year ago, 17 percent of our sh- our stories were shared on uh, Facebook. Um, This year, 25% of our traffic is coming from Facebook and Twitter. So uh, there's steady growth, and that's where we need to be. We need to be where people are, and people are on social media. So what kinds of, and I know you've, uh, you know, you you pushed into radio as well, Um, you know, with the behind the headlines Um, and and that program. Yeah, we've had a great partnership with UPR doing uh, Behind the Headlines. I anticipate that we'll be doing more in the audio space um, in the the coming year or so. Um, Really, I think that newspaper audiences are changing, just like audiences everywhere. Everybody wants content on their timetable. They want it, how they consume it. Radio is perfect for that. Any audio, you can save it and play it at your convenience and when you're traveling and doing whatever you want. So um, it gives uh, the printed story a more robust presentation, uh, more multidimensional, and I think uh, our audiences are really responding to that. Natalie Andrews, what's the balance? What 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 does the journal say about balance? I guess it always going the foundation is always going to be the print. At least the online, and then the social media is a is a part of that, or or is it going to transition? Do you think? You know, we've done a huge revamp of our desk in of our news desk in I think it was August, like last fall, and then the politics team they were they were trying to kind of keep us 
a little bit safer from because of all the um, because we were in the middle of covering the campaign. But the whole focus has been really to make us platform agnostic. So I'll file a story if I'm reporting and I'll get a digital read back and the story will go online. And then maybe hours later, I'll get a print read back if it's going to go into the print paper. And so the idea of that is and then on the print readback is usually like the cut down version. Like, hey, we've taken your 600 word story and now it's 400 words and this is what's going in print. And so the idea of that is that you're writing a story and you don't care which platform it goes on. And then the print editors are going to take the best of the best and they're going to line it up and pick and choose and and make stories shorter so they can get more in. And it's it's supposed to make the reporters not necessarily care where your story goes and different things like that. And we do have podcasts that they're starting at the journal and things like that. You're supposed to tweet all your stories, all the reporters are. And we often send our stories out to the bureau when a big story publishes so that all the reporters will tweet it. So we are trying to be very platform agnostic, but also at the same time everywhere, mm-hmm. which creates challenges, but mm-hmm. also... I mean, you're you're wanting reporters to not think like, oh, this ended up on, you know, A4 instead of A1. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's still nice to see your name on the front page of the Wall Street yeah, Journal. So. Yeah, yeah, certainly so. Uh, Jennifer Napier-Pierce, uh, I'm wondering about financial health of newspapers. Um, this is something I know public radio consumers really worry about. It's, you know, it's, it's world, that Venn diagram is a lot of overlap. Um, and, you know, for example, I... Uh, I uh, understand the paywalls. I know Wall Street Journal has a paywall, right? Yes, we've had a paywall ever since we got online. New York Times, uh, you know, Washington Post. So I, I butt up against that, but I, I feel it's important for me to pay for at least one newspaper. So, Jennifer, I'm a subscriber, at least have been. I need to renew it to, to the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want to talk with Natalie about the paywall. You, the Salt Lake Tribune has not gone in that uh, direction. Um but you've had to seek new revenue streams, right? Because the classified ads and so forth have have reduced quite a bit in the paper. I I would say uh, we've not gone that direction yet. Uh, it, it is coming, and I think it's only fair to give our consumers notice that it is coming. All newspapers um, have have turned to their subscribers for support. I mean, it's really about supporting the journalists that that you trust. And so um, uh, it's coming. I'm not sure exactly what the timing will be. We're in the middle of revamping all of our digital platforms. And so once that is ready and people can see what our new cool website and our new apps look like, and hopefully they'll be willing to pay for it. And um, it'll, it'll most likely be a graduated uh, response, so you know you get ten free articles or whatever, and then you got to start paying. Um, we haven't quite figured out how that's going to work mechanically, but yeah, mm. I, all all newspapers are are going this way because it's the financial reality is our print product is uh, diminishing in subscriptions. We have to turn to our digital subscribers and and ask them to pay a little bit. Uh, Natalie Andrews, um, so I totally understand the paywall. I, you got to, you know, you got to raise the money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's it, it's quite different from you know the culture of the internet and social media, right? People people are used to getting things for free getting in that world. To echo what Jennifer said, it really is about like the news is valuable, and. I, you know, we get a lot of angst on Twitter or something if someone hits our paywall. Mm-hmm. And especially we changed it last fall so that if you click on a link via Twitter or Facebook, you can read the article for free. But sometimes glitches happen or we'll get angst on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll often reply and I'll say, hey, news is worth paying for. These people are working really hard. And I think that journalist work is worth paying for to get the right information out. But yeah, I mean, it does. There, You can find that information maybe out there for free but i i really believe that news is worth paying for that it's good to have a subscription to a newspaper uh the election has helped us news since the election has helped us subscriptions are up at the journal the new york times the washington post uh new york times ran a commercial last night during the oscars Mm -hmm. Uh, and the washington post just launched a a new slogan Uh, we launched i think 
I don't know how far, I don't know the details of the ad campaign, but I know that our editor, Jerry Baker, sent out an email last night with a new ad that we're going to be running. So I think that news is valuable. It might, maybe journal, maybe journalism just has changed the culture of the internet a little bit and say, hey, we're all going to, like, you have to pay for this now because yeah. it costs a lot of money to go out and get the news if yeah. we're going to fly around the country and tell you stories. And believe me, that's that's the speech we give here at Public Radio. And we'll, you know, coming at the, the, the end of March, you'll be hearing that ad, ad nauseum, at least for about a week. Um, let's take uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to treat this question. This is quoted in this article at the Journalism Communication Department. Uh, the quote from Natalie Andrews. The change in technology in America led to a wild year, talking about the election year, that no one would have predicted. But maybe everyone should have seen coming. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get a response to that from Natalie Andrews and Jennifer Napier-Pierce when we come back from this break. Here we go. (laughs) Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, we have with us Natalie Andrews. She's a Wall Street Journal social media editor and reporter. She's giving a talk today at noon on the USU campus as a part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series. Uh, that talk is from noon to one. It's in Merrill Kazir Library Room 101. And uh, by the way, the Department of Journalism and Communication, which is sponsoring this talk, says that that talk will be tweeted, Instagram, Snapchatted, and broadcast on Facebook Live for, by students from the department. So it's very appropriate. Um, and we're talking about uh, the election that was the, uh, uh, the the Donald Trump world, our our first uh, tweeting president, or you know at the least at this level. And what does that portend for the intertwined futures of journalism and democracy? We have with us Natalie Andrews and Salt Lake Tribune editor Jennifer Napier Pierce. You can uh, join the program here at uh, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, at upraxcess. That's at upraxcess. So this is the quote on the webpage of the Journalism and Communication uh, Department website, quoting you, Natalie Andrews, the change in technology in America led to a wild year no one would have predicted, talking about last year, but maybe everyone should have seen it coming. Maybe everyone should have seen it coming? Well, you know, I think when we look at the culture we live in, we have a 24-hour news cycle. We have reality TV stars dominating our culture constantly. If a reality TV star has a show, they're also making news in the world. So now we have someone who's mastered Twitter, mastered sucking the oxygen out of the room. He is a reality TV star, and he became president. It's It seemed unbelievable, and then you sit back and... It, it's it becomes a little more believable when you when you look at the culture across America and how we've adopted and when you look at the the map and how so much of America has become red so much of what's so called the flyover states they're red now and you when you look at the map and and you look at our culture these two things that come together it does seem like why didn't we why were we so surprised that we were here mm-hmm. um, why people liked how Donald Trump talked he talked like them. Mm-hmm. You know, they would, people, when I would talk to Donald Trump supporters, uh, I remember at the RNC, you know, trying to talk about policy. And his, we often talked about how this was a policy free election, but he talked in simple terms. He said he wanted to bring jobs back to America. That was their policy. The people grabbed onto that. And he talked about how he wanted to build a wall and he wanted to be tough on immigration. That was policy. And people grabbed onto that. And so, it is one of those things, and on election night, there was uh, 
I mean, I was stunned because we had trusted all this data that we, you know, I, that, that was the stunning part because there was so much data that showed otherwise. But then when you look back, it's, and as we've watched so much analysis and, oh boy, how many think pieces do we need written about this election? <laughs> but there, um, it is interesting to say, oh, well, this is the election we we got mm. because of what we created. Right. Jennifer Napier-Pierce, I wonder what your take is. How, how much of this, the outcome of the election, was a, a man meeting the moment? Um, yeah, I, I do think that he he optimized the tools at his disposal. I, I'm thinking back to 2015, I think it was in the summer, and Hillary Clinton posted something on student debt, and Jeb Bush uh, you know, tweeted back at her. And so they got into this little mix-up yeah. on Twitter. And how everybody was like, oh, my goodness, you know, these these candidates are, are taking over social media and using it in new and different ways. And now, um, having lived through the past year and a half, it's it seems very quaint, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump has created his own channel where he can communicate with 25 million people on Twitter um, he doesn't need traditional media anymore to communicate with his base. I think that is just uh, a fundamental shift in American politics. Um, what the traditional media has to do, of course, is to break through that wall and speak to uh, the people who are not super inclined to be critical of the president. Uh, but that's our role is, as watchdogs. Um, but, yeah, social media has really... Uh, changed the landscape of American politics, um, international politics. The way that he's interacting with uh, other nations mm-hmm. has also been changed through social media. It's a, a fascinating and a little bit troubling phenomenon to be watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, media has to use those tools as well. We used um, Facebook Live to live stream uh, a town hall meeting that got quite raucous with uh, Representative Jason Chaffetz, and that went viral. It went all over. Uh, Mainstream media captured some of those images as well. So again, I think media has to adapt and embrace these new tools because the rest of the world is. Um, Natalie Andrews, following up on what Jennifer Napier-Pierce mm-hmm. said, um, what is the role of media, then? A president who has his own channel, to his supporters at least, mm-hmm. it can totally bypass the media, and in fact has set the media up as a punching bag, and that, I think, still goes over quite well with his supporters. Yes, and I think that's where the term the media is is a hard one, right? Because the media is a lot of different things, and... It's it's an umbrella term, but it's also a term where, I mean, you have conservative outlets or you have outlets, say, like um, Breitbart that have that are on a different track than, say, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post that are trying very diligently to cover this president and, you know, write what he says and clear and say, well, it's if he says something that is not true to clear that up and you know you have outlets on the other end of the spectrum too so you know and we're all competing so uh, talking about the media is often difficult but i think the role here is really to break through this noise that is being created and tr- offer some clarity offer some fact checking when needed offer some perspective. So if, you know, the president has just tweeted something about what happened in Sweden, (laughs) explaining that nothing happened in Sweden. And in fact, this is what's happening that is probably making him tweet that and saying, okay, well, this is an echo of possibly the president's media consumption instead of something that happened in Sweden. And trying to offer clarity, it's hard because you can't make people read the news. I'm saw so much post-election angst and had friends who I, or I thought were friends that yelled at me and said, why didn't you do a better job? And I'm like, we we told you a lot of what was going on. But you can't make you can't make people read your stories anymore. I mean, you can certainly distribute them on social media. But Jennifer Napier Pierce, I wonder the, the, this um the skill that Trump had during the campaign, and he seems to be still following this, at least at times, as president, dominating news cycles, sucking all of the uh, oxygen out of the, out of the room. 
uh, when the president is, uh, you know, aiming a fire hose of, of whatever, you know, um, including, you know, bizarre things about Sweden along with policy stuff, along with everything. Um, media can't respond to every last thing, right? The media's been used to, to taking what the president said, analyzing that, maybe fact-checking it. Now you got so much. How, did, how, does the, how should the media respond? It's really tricky um, because he is the commander-in-chief. He is the leader of the free world. And so you can't just automatically put up a, a screen to say, this guy is just spewing garbage. You can't do that. You have to pay attention. On the other hand, I do think that a lot of the stuff that he's putting out is distraction. And so it's it's a real balancing act, I think. And the media are still trying to negotiate mm-hmm. how exactly to do that most effectively. Um, you know, his tweets about Meryl Streep, just, you know, they, they went on and on on uh, broadcast media and and social media, and it's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that really does not matter when you're talking about vetting cabinet positions and international policies that he's also launching on Twitter. Um, I think um, I think Nicholas Carr, I believe, in a political article called uh, Donald Trump a natural-born troll, and I do think that there's a little bit of that to it. So um, the media is going to have to be selective, discriminating, and decide what exactly is worthy of our attention um, without getting sidetracked. It's just it's so easy to do right now. Jennifer, I know you have to go soon. Uh, just one last question for you, and then we'll, we'll get responses to these two last questions from Natalie Andrews. Uh, Steve Bannon uh, at CPAC recently, uh, these are not his words I'm paraphrasing, but he was saying, hey, we're right on track. The, the people wanted a disruption of the old order, and we're disrupting, and, uh, and it's going great. Well, um, I think that's probably an accurate assessment. If people did want to to shake things up, uh, the Trump administration certainly is. I think the downside to that is um, there's a lot of misleading going on. There's um, there are comments that are not exactly truthful being circulated by the commander in chief, and so. Uh, that's where the role of the press is more important than ever to make sure that truth, that facts are circulated. Um, I love the commercial last night, Natalie, as you mentioned, from the New York Times. Um, and I, I do think that the, the press is embracing this new role and will continue to do it robustly. Um, but I can't say that it's going to be easy. Donald Trump is going to do everything in his power to to craft the message that he wants out there. And so journalists need to be vigilant and alert. Uh, Jennifer Tapier Pierce, I know you you have to get going. I appreciate you uh, being with us. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Jennifer Napier Pierce, uh, editor of Salt Lake Tribune. We appreciate her taking the time to be with us. And uh, we're talking about uh, media journalism, uh, the new uh, social media order, uh, which is being embraced with gusto by our new president. And we're talking uh, for the rest of the hour with Natalie Andrews. She's a Wall Street Journal social media editor and reporter. She's giving a talk today on USU campus as part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series. It's facilitated by Utah State's Department of Journalism and Communication. Here's how they describe the talk. It's now clear that we live in an era of fake news, trolled tweets, and email dumps. So what does that mean for media, our democracy, and our future? And uh, Natalie Andrews will discuss uh, the role of the press in the 2016 election, what the results of that election portend for the intertwined futures of journalism and democracy. By the way, that talk is uh, noon to one in the Merrill Kazir Library, room 101. Uh, And you're welcome to join us in this discussion at 800-826-1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or on Twitter at upraccess. That's at upraccess. Uh, So, uh, Natalie Andrews, I wonder, this statement apparently from Nicholas Carr, the president uh, has characteristics of a classic troll. Uh, It does seem like he has a, a strategy, at least sometimes. No, I think he does. I think his I think we cannot underestimate Donald Trump at all. This is a man who was elected to president of the United States. I I 
don't think we should underestimate his his strategy in certain things. Um, if certain things have happened because of the people he's surrounded himself by as an advisor, well, that's also a strategy that he's taken in as well. Those are people he's surrounded himself with. Uh, his Twitter strategy has num—I mean, on numerous times has he tweeted something and it's completely derailed the news of the day. I can't tell you how many times I've been up on Capitol Hill trying to cover one story and then Donald Trump has set us on a t- completely different track and all of a sudden I'm, we're chasing down John McCain asking for his comments on our relationship with Australia. Like, you know, who knew that would be the assignment for the day, but there we were. And so, I mean, certainly those conversations, I mean, when he tweeted about the border wall or different things like that. Suddenly, we were trying to get reaction from Republican lawmakers on that. Um, and you know, he started a war, Twitter war with the president of Mexico. <laughs> and these are things that, certainly, while they are troll-like in nature or they seem abrupt, uh, I don't think they can be underestimated. I think that he has also used Twitter effectively when House Republicans were wanting to get rid of the Ethics Committee. Right before Congress started, he tweeted, and suddenly that was completely derailed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's done that effectively. So he knows what he's doing, and he's able to kind of turn the news cycle. He is the president of the United States, so you do take what he says very literally, which some said was the media's error during the election. We shouldn't have taken him so literally. His followers don't. But mm-hmm. I think we— We'll continue to take the president at what he says and continue to um, take him at his word. But it does present an interesting conundrum because, yeah, do you write off of everything he says? We have a reporter who wakes up earlier now just to anticipate Donald Trump tweets and to be ready for them. Mm. And they if they're if it's deemed that something should be written off of them, we do. Mm. I mean, lately in the morning, he's been tweeting about leaks and things like that and going after the FBI. And I mean, that's definitely newsworthy when the president is creating a battle with his own intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And and some say that people who subscribe to the theory that he's crazy like a fox mm-hmm. are saying he's setting them up to take the fall if if something bad happens. You know, he can say, I told you so. And they, and they yeah. didn't, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I want to talk about lies and how the, <laughs> the media media's had a heck of a time. Um, it's a sensitive word. Yes, it's a sensitive word. Or do you say untruth? Or do you say falsehood? Or do you, do you say delusion? Many presidents have lied. Um, Harry Truman famously said of FDR, the problem with the president, he said, is that he lies. FDR mm-hmm. was famously opaque. You'd come away from a meeting with him um, thinking that he totally agreed with you, and then you found out the next day he, you know, he he derailed your bill. Um, Donald Trump does put out a lot of stuff that is not factually true, and so I've I've, I've seen an evolution in the media. How do, how do you maybe talk about about that? To it, how should the media respond to those things? Uh, the Wall Street Journal does not use the term lie, and I agree with that um, as a journalist. And NPR also agrees with us. So oftentimes, you know, the Wall Street Journal and NPR don't often see. Um, so it's interesting. There's a few other um, news organizations that have written blog posts or different things on why they don't necessarily use this word. Um, because to lie implies like an intent. And as a journalist, you don't often you don't well, you don't know the person's intent. And so we I, I believe I believe that you should. You know, you should write what the person says and then you follow that up with a paragraph or you proceed it with a paragraph saying, well, this is untrue because and you explain it. So it's it's perfectly fair to say this is why this is untrue or, you know, the president fired off a bunch of tweets on Thursday morning that contained a series of inaccurate statements. It's a perfectly normal lead that we might have if it was true. Um, But I don't think we'd ever say the president sent off a bunch of tweets Thursday morning lying to the American people or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, just because lying implies an intent. And unless we had an interview with the president where he said, oh, I lied about that. I don't think we'd ever use mm-hmm. it. That would be a headline for sure. And yeah. if we had that quote, we'd use it. But I don't think we'd ever use that word because it does imply that you knew the intent behind it. And and we can't prove intent, right? Yeah, like, you can't prove intent. I as mean a he he may well believe what what he's saying, I guess. Exactly. You. And so yeah. you just you give people that um, birth as a journalist. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder, uh, does social media have a have a role, I, I guess, in a, in the problem and or the solution to the, this this problem of fragmentation? At least, a lot of people see it as a problem. Like, uh, there might be some who don't see it. In other words, you can you know easiest uh, easier today than it has ever been to sit in your silo and only consume media outlets that you agree with. Yeah, I think that it's uh, Facebook and Twitter have both talked about this. I, Facebook recently launched a project that was that's intended to help people cross these bridges. But MIT, which analyzes, they have access to all the Twitter data. And so they analyzed all the followers of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and different presidential candidates after the election. And they found that these people just do not talk to each other. And I do think that is a problem. And I think the fact that on you know Twitter and Facebook, we can be very selective at what we choose to read. It creates this echo chamber in our heads of, well, you know, I saw that this was biased, or I saw that Hillary Clinton did this, or I saw that Donald Trump did this. And we have this confirmation bias in our heads. I think it's something that led to the whole fake news phenomenon building. Um, The Wall Street Journal has this great thing, if you just Google red feed, blue feed, where we put liberal news sites next to conservative news sites on the web. And you can, and it's, it's just like a fake Facebook news feed on the wallstreetjournal.com. And it just shows you how, and you can click on different topics and it will show you like how conservative news sites are covering that topic and how liberal news sites are covering that topic. And it's shocking to see the same news set, news story, but just the different headlines that people are seeing. And all of a sudden you might think, oh, well, that's why my neighbor believes that. Or mm-hmm. that's why my friend was so shocked that this happened. Or things like that. Because if that's the news you're seeing and that's the slant you're seeing constantly, then it's it's not shocking that someone believes in those things. Hmm. Has that horse left the barn? Will we ever have a... Our memory is, and I don't know if it ever was this way, our mm-hmm. memory was that we we didn't have, if you take that feed, mm-hmm. you know, liberal conservative, that we had maybe a, a feed down the center that a lot of people agreed with. Mm-hmm. You know, I was at a town hall last week, one of the raucous town halls that people saw in the news, and it was in New Jersey, and I was talking to a woman, and she said, I'd never watched Fox News. She was a Hillary Clinton voter. And she said, I had never watched Fox News a day in my life, but since the election, I've been forcing myself to watch it more. I want to understand what the other side sees. Mm-hmm. She said, I've been picking up conservative news news sites. She's, she used the Wall Street Journal as an example. She's like, I've been trying to read the Wall Street Journal more. But she said she wants to understand why her friends voted for Donald Trump. She wants to understand that. And she said, even though it's so hard for me sometimes, mm-hmm. I just... She wanted to understand that. And I think maybe if something happens after the election where we can try to understand each other's perspective, and we're a very divided country, and if we can try to understand the other person's perspective and understand that not all people who, you know, people that voted for Donald Trump don't all fit in one box, and people that voted for Hillary Clinton don't all fit in one box, Mm -hmm. um, that's important. Well, that's hopeful. That's a hopeful sign. And and hopefully Trump supporters are are doing the same uh you know it's 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 a few anecdotes but that's yeah we'll, we'll, we'll grab we'll grab my what friend we can, yesterday right? called me the least cynical person in washington so <laughs> so take it but I'm, I'm grabbing though i'm, I'm grabbing that because uh, i want to believe um let's take a break when we come back i want to talk about um the raucousness that uh, that the exists on social media you talk mm-hmm. about raucous town halls uh, social media can be a pretty brutal place yes it can um, and I think this last election, especially in social media, there was a lot of social fraying, you know, family members unfriending each other, mm-hmm. and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, I want to talk about that part of it. And then this intersection of uh, journalism and democracy, and, and we'll talk more. We're talking with Natalie Andrews. She is a Wall Street Journal social media editor and reporter. She's giving a talk today at USU, <clears throat> excuse me, as a part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series that is uh, facilitated by Utah State's uh, Department of Journalism and Communication, and that is uh, Merrill Kazir Library Room 101. That's at noon today. More following this break. Gabriela Montero has been playing the piano concerto by Edvard Grieg since she was 11, so she just bought a new copy of the music. 
My original one I've used all these years has Hello Kitty stickers all over it. <laughs> so I said, okay, time to grow up. You of, know? Course, yeah. of course. Coming up, Gabriela Montero in concert on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Cowboy Rendezvous, Friday, March 3rd through Sunday, March 5th at Mountain Crest High School in Hiram. Presenting the Bard and Balladeer in concert, featuring Don Edwards and Waddy Mitchell. More information available at cvcowboy.org. What happens when a question... Could we knock Earth off its orbit? Will we ever run out of new music? Why are things creepy? What about the five-second rule? Is that true? Doesn't have an easy answer. Humans aren't just about asking questions. There's always a push and pull between should we keep asking or is it better left with what we know today? I'm Guy Raz. Ideas about the spirit of inquiry. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Natalie Andrews, a Wall Street Journal social media editor and reporter. She's giving a talk today at USU as a part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series. That's facilitated by the Utah State's Department of Journalism and Communication. And uh, that talk is at noon uh, today, noon to one, at Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. Everyone is invited, and you're invited to join this conversation, if you would like, to upraxcess@gmail.com or on Twitter, at upraxcess, or you could call us at 800-826-1495. So, Natalie Andrews, before the break, we mentioned we are going to talk about social fraying. Social media is a place people can come together. Mm-hmm. Very convenient. It's also a place where people can fight. Yes. And troll. Yes. And anonymously attack each other. This election was especially raucous. Um, and, you know, now President Trump and, you know, brash New Yorker mm-hmm. embrace that ethos. But I've heard anecdotally about, uh, you know, family members unfriending each other and, and friendships blowing up on social media. It, it's it's it had a, a fraying on our social fabric, I think. Certainly. We had two of the most disliked candidates of all time. So if you didn't like, I mean, if you were voting for Hillary Clinton or you're voting for Donald Trump, like, chances are, like, just people didn't like these candidates. So I think that also led to some, like, if you if you were on Team Trump, you, like, probably really didn't like Hillary Clinton. And so just it just really brought out a lot of emotion for people. They had reasons why they were voting for these people. Or you just had really conflicted people who didn't like either candidate. I know Utah struggled with that. A lot of Utah voters um, struggled. But we had just candidates that had never been so disliked. Our polling just showed that people were having such a hard time making this decision. And then once they jumped on a team, they they jumped on that team and they often defended that candidate. It And people talked about this election on social media. It was the most top, talked about topic on Facebook in 2015, again in 2016. So people were talking about it and, and definitely I think it's probably severed a few uh, the friendships. I was searching mm. on. I was searching for information on the Wall Street Journal for what we'd written on the reconciliation bill for news coming up in Congress. And as I searched like WSJ reconciliation, the first article that came up with with was a post election article we'd done on how to reconcile <laughs> with your family after the election. And I just started laughing. It's <laughs> like, oh, I hope we can all come together. <laughs> how, uh, how? What did that article say? How? How do we? I think Come we, back we, I think we find our common ground and mm. we we move past the 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 difficulties and we also try to listen. I mean if you if you're by all means if you're friends with someone listen to why they voted the way they did. You know, if if you're friends a lot of people struggle with Hillary Clinton's views on abortion, part of part of which because some untrue statements were said in, during debate and and Donald Trump capitalized on that but i had a i knew a, a lot of christian people who that was a dividing line that that they voted on that and so they weren't they weren't voting on say Donald Trump's immigration policies or they weren't voting you know if you can find that common ground and come together maybe that'll save a friendship and you know maybe it's not worth losing a friend over mm, yeah politics because yeah. at the end of the day i mean 
I know Donald Trump's not coming to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, but I always love that dinner every year because it's a dinner where you sit with Republicans and Democrats and you chat and mingle with all sorts of people and politics doesn't matter for a night. And it's certainly the past few years, I mean, President Barack Obama has been on stage and, and talked, but that dinner is four hours long. What you see on C-SPAN or whatever is a very small part. What you are getting is a conversation with people from both sides of the aisle, which is a nice moment. And there's lots of moments like that in Washington. Um, I hope there's more. I hope mm. that more people can talk across the aisle. Right. I think we need that. Uh, and it's probably going to have to be very purposeful, right? Because the passions don't seem to be cooling, um, as evidenced by the raucous town halls. Because you know, Tea Party energy just on the other side nowadays. You've covered some of the. I think you talked mm-hmm. to uh, Representative Amash. Yes, and I would add that I think those uh, those relationships can maybe be saved in your family, but they're certainly not happening in the upper echelons of Congress right now. Right. Or, you know, and. Yeah, the town halls have been raucous. I was at one last week. I've talked to lawmakers who are dealing with them. Uh, they're they're hearing from their constituents. We're seeing this widespread f- or organization and this fervor from the left after the election that has been compared to what we saw in 2009 with the Tea Party. And I talked to a woman who organized a Tea Party group in 2009, and she said, well, we were upset after the election. We didn't like President Obama's policies, so we formed our Tea Party group, and we decided we were going to push conservative policies. And that was in 2000. That was her story in 2009. And when I talked to people uh, last week in New Jersey for a story we were working on, she said, I heard almost identical stories of, well, we were upset about the results of the election. We decided we need to organize. Some people said they didn't even know who their congressman was in their district. And they decided, well, I need to figure out how this election happened. I need to get involved in local politics. And I want to make sure my voice is heard. Hmm. And so now, and the congressman that we went to, his district, uh, Representative Lance, he had last held a he held a town hall in this place in New Jersey. It was the biggest auditorium in his district. It seats 900 people. The last time he t- held a town hall in that auditorium was 2009. So he's seeing the same fervor from people, just on a totally different side. Um, he's a Republican, so I imagine in 2009 his conservative views fit that audience a little bit more than now. He faced some strong objections, a lot of people yelling at him, do your job, a lot of people questioning about Russia, a lot of people, and he said himself he was very surprised he was getting so many questions about Russia, you know, and then a lot of people concerned about the ACA and what what the ACA plan looks like. We haven't seen any, a plan from the Republicans on the ACA, so maybe once we start seeing things, that will calm some people because Paul Ryan has said he wants to keep certain things that people are concerned about, saving pre-existing conditions. But we also don't know how they're going to pay for it. And we don't know these, those details. So once that starts coming out, maybe that concern. But people are organizing and they're very upset and yeah. they want their voice heard. Yeah. It does seem to be, a, you know, kind of a civics lesson, a glass half full, right? Yes. Uh, uh, and there is a lot of concern about how do we take this energy and and have it make an effect electorally. And that mm-hmm. seemed to be a concern of the Tea Party as exactly. well. Exactly, you know? yeah. We can't just march in protest. Mm-hmm. we we got to make a difference in, you know, in, in elections. Yeah, so the Indivisible Guide is out, and a lot of people are reading that. Uh, former con- Democratic congressional staffers, after the election, what started as a tweet storm, basically like a string of tweets from a congressional staffer saying, you know, hey, if you want to get involved, this is how you make politicians listen to you. Um, That is now a guide and it's available online and it's telling people how to organize, telling people how to contact their congressperson in the best way, telling people basically here's how to organize at a small level. And Indivisibles, they've now, they've now, I think they're, I don't want to say what they've organized as a 501 or whatever because I'll get it wrong. But they're now organized too, so you'll probably see them. You'll probably hear more from Indivisible, just like you. We hear of various groups that came out of the Tea Party movement, and um, they don't. I don't. 
I think their executive director said he hadn't received a paycheck yet, but they're a small group of former congressional staffers that, yes, they're seeing their mission now is helping these people. Mm -hmm. And what is starting is small Facebook groups. And it's interesting. It's starting all on social media, but it's starting as these small neighborhood Facebook groups. A lot of them are secret because they don't want to talk to their neighbors about how they feel about politics. Um, And it's starting, and now some of these groups have 800, 1,000 members, and now they're going to these town halls, and then they'll, I mean, you might see them, you know, embrace a candidate. They're not connected to the Democratic Party, which I think is interesting. Uh, There's not necessarily a party loyalty there, but they're obviously more liberal and left, and they um, vote almost universally, the people I talked to had voted for Hillary Clinton, so... I want to ask you a bit about prospects. Uh, There's a lot of energy on the left these days, but it it does seem that the conventional wisdom is Republicans have been making grassroots, you know, making purposeful Mm -hmm. grassroots inroads at the legislative level and governorships. And, you know, they've been organizing a lot better than Democrats have. Um, and, and as you mentioned, the large swath of America now is red. Yes. Um, but to what do you attribute that to good organization by Republicans? Just America has swung that way. Gerrymandering. I think all of the above possibly, Mm -hmm. but there's, uh, I mean, Democrats are in a tough place right now. We've written a lot about that. My colleagues have written a lot about that. Um, I think you can drive from like Florida to, like to Canada or Idaho or not ever hit a Democratic district right now. And the amount of states that have Republican-led governments, and it's just the Democrats don't have this bench that Republicans have built. And I think you'll some of the... Some Democrats and progressives have now woken up to that. We had a story last week at the Journal about how some Bernie Sanders fans are now showing up in to Democratic Party meetings and making sure that their party flows the way they want their party to, and they're getting more involved. And I think it's hard when you've had a Democratic president. Maybe people, they didn't quite notice what was happening. They had the top guy that they they liked and they felt good. They they saw his face and they thought that things were going well and maybe they weren't necessarily looking at what was going on around them but local politics are very important and local politics matter a lot so i think that you'll see after the women's march that group said they had hundreds of women interested in running for office and so it'll be interesting to see what happens i'm definitely along for the ride to see mm-hmm. what happens and how they organize but you like you said they're in a interesting predicament and it I think, you know, Republicans were able to organize districts in a way that helped Republicans get elected and stay in office. And then they but they also got organized. Uh, we had a story. I always hearken back to this story that we had in like November of 2014, where our reporters talked to party Democratic Party leaders in various states. And they just talked about how much how little support they weren't they were getting from that party so they weren't getting much support they weren't feeling that connection to the party and i think the democratic party that's something that they've tried to address and they just went through a very contentious election for a leader and i think they want to be able to organize now and have a stronger party We'll have to leave it there. I know you have to uh, get going uh, with some events on campus. Natalie Andrews is a Wall Street Journal social media editor and reporter, and she's giving a talk today at USU as part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, which is facilitated by Utah State's Department of Journalism and Communication. That talk is uh, today at noon in Merrill Kazir Library 101. Everyone is invited, uh, and of course you can uh, read her um, through social media, right, yeah. on, on uh, the Wall Street Journal. Natalie Andrews, thank you so much. Thank you so much. For coming in. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. There have been a few big moments in the history of cooking. In 1961, when Julia Child published Mastering the Art of French Cooking. In 1718, when Mary Ailes recorded a recipe for ice cream. Around 800 B.C. when the Greeks introduced olive oil to the Mediterranean. But nothing can beat that moment 1.8 million years ago when a homo habilis creature, we'll call him Greg, let the starchy root he was gnawing slip into the fire, 
rescued it, took a bite, and evolved into a human. Okay, that may be oversimplifying things. But Harvard anthropologist Richard Wrangham thinks that humans couldn't have evolved until they learned to cook food. They couldn't have survived otherwise, he writes in the book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Before cooking, we had to spend an enormous amount of time chewing. Animals of similar size and weight to us chew five to six hours per day just to extract enough calories to maintain their body weight. If you add to that a necessary rest period when Greg's gut would have been working to digest the fibrous mass he'd just eaten, that would be half the day. That left little time for other things like hunting and socializing. The average modern human, on the other hand, chews for less than one hour per day. Cooking first developed about the same time that humans learned to control fire, or logically. It may have happened accidentally, or Greg may have found an animal killed in a grass fire and given it a nibble. When cooking became a predictable daily occurrence, it benefited Homo habilis in several ways. It killed germs, destroyed some poisons, and made his food safer. But more importantly, it gave him energy. When food is cooked, it becomes more digestible. Cooking gelatinizes starch, denatures protein, and softens both fiber and protein, permitting a more complete digestion and energy extraction bite for bite than raw food. It is an enormous energy gain from 30 to 50%. Our ancient ancestors used that extra energy. They became more active as hunters and engaged in social activities. They had more babies and took care of them for longer. Over generations, their bodies changed. They developed smaller stomachs, smaller mouths and teeth, and weaker jaws. With a smaller gut, their ribs became less flared and their pelvis narrowed. And with the energy saved from these changes, they grew bigger brains. Homo erectus had a 40% larger brain than Homo habilis and looked much more like a modern human. So it was a great moment in history. Thanks, Greg, for making olive oil, ice cream, cheese fondue, apple pie, Three Musketeers bars, and all the rest of it possible. This is Lael Gilbert with Bread and Butter. I'm Eric Westervelt. In 1940, the Nazi war machine was racing across Europe. England was next. Winston Churchill knew conventional forces alone wouldn't defeat Hitler, so he created a secret unit to attack where he was least expecting it, to do maximum damage to this highly mechanized army. Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, next time on Here and Now. Join us for the second half of Here and Now today at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Canadian singer-songwriter Katie Lang will be here. She's celebrating 25 years since her album Ingenue. That was her record with the hit Constant Craving. She'll reflect on her legacy and how she feels now about the song she wrote back then. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, stop me if you've heard this one before. It is an agency, a federal agency that has long outlived its usefulness. I'm Kai Rizdal, the Election Assistance Commission, what it does, why, and how it might not be long for this world. That story and the rest of the day's business news next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.